We're continuing our series in uh, Isaiah. We're bouncing around in Isaiah and looking at these different pictures of Jesus, the coming king. And today we're going to be looking at a kingdom of peace from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. So let me read that now. It says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Peace. Amen. Of the increase of his government and of Peace. peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me? Father God, we need your spirit present here with us as we unpack these scriptures and see how they apply to us today. And as we look for a fresh picture of King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, would you work here this morning? Would you be with me as I, as I preach? May you help me to speak words of scripture, words of truth. And would you open our hearts that we might get a fresh picture of who you are? In your name we pray, amen. You know, one of the phrases we say a lot at Christmas time is peace on earth. Peace on earth. And yet, I think all of us long to see that realized more than it is on earth. Because there's not really peace on earth, is there? I felt that longing last week as I watched a video. Many of you know what's been going on up at Standing Rock with some of the the protests against the pipeline through the Indian, uh, Indian reservation. And uh, there was a video that was going around where members who were veterans of the military went to these tribal leaders from the Sioux tribe to apologize for past wrongs. And led by a man named Wesley Clark Jr., these group of military veterans asked for a ceremony where they could ask for forgiveness from the Sioux tribal leaders. And they got before the tribal leaders and they kneeled down in humility before these men and women from the Sioux tribe. And led by a man named Wesley Clark Jr., uh, he said, we have made promises to you and we broke them. We changed your language and we took your children away from you and, and and put them in boarding school. We mined your lands and made profit off what we took from you. And the treaties that we made with you, we broke. Please forgive us. 
And it was this powerful moment. And I felt this longing in my heart for peace. And then Wesley Clark Jr. approached the main figure for the tribal leaders and kneeled before him. And the tribal leader, who was old and, and in a wheelchair, reached his arm out. And as Wesley Clark kneeled before him, the tribal leader leaned over him and put his hand gently on the back of Wesley Clark's neck. A touch of peace. And I felt something well up in my heart saying, that's it. That's what we were made for. And at the same time, as I felt that longing build up in me, I I felt despair. Because while I saw a glimpse of peace on earth, there's few and far between that we actually do see peace on earth. A situation where men and women go and ask for an apology and ask for forgiveness from people that have been harmed years and decades and centuries before, that doesn't happen. It's so rare. Peace on earth more like chaos on earth. We long for peace on earth. We long to see things set right, but we also long for personal peace, don't we? I mean, sometimes you just want a moment of peace or you want peace with your past or you want to know with what to do with the shame from your past. You want to know what do I do with the things that I've done to other people? Or what do I do with the things that have been done to me? And because we don't know what to do with those things, we're not at peace. Not only is there not peace in the world, but there's not peace in here. And yet you and I continue to long for peace because we were made for peace. We were made for peace. And we look around this world searching for peace, something to bring peace into our lives, into our hearts, and we pursue after relationships, thinking if I could just get this relationship, that will bring me peace. Or or maybe it's some sort of substance or addiction that we develop and we can't get away because that's the only thing I can find that gives me some sort of peace. Or maybe we pursue control. I, I can have peace if I'm just in control of what's happening in my life. And we pursue control and control and control, but we're never really at peace because we're never really in control. And we begin to put things on the throne and say, if I can only have this, I'll have peace. If I can only have this, I'll have peace. And before you know it, we're worshiping those things instead of worshiping God. We long for peace and we look for peace, but we don't find peace because peace has been destroyed. Peace has been destroyed when man rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. God made us to be at peace with him. And when God created the world and we created Adam and Eve, there was nothing but peace. It was all peace. You didn't have to go looking for peace because peace was everywhere. In the Bible, the word peace comes from the word shalom. And and shalom doesn't just mean the absence of war. It's much fuller. Cornelius Plantinga puts it this way. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures 
in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Even as I read that, you say amen because you long for that. You want that because you were made for that. You were made for that. But when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden and disobeyed God, our relationship with God was scandalized and shalom was vandalized. When we broke relationship with God, we were separated from him. And then peace got broke in the world. When we broke peace with God in the garden, peace got broke in the world. And the reason why you and I can't find peace in this life is because we've said no to God. No God, no peace. In the later part part of the 8th century B.C., so some 2,800 years ago, King Ahaz finds himself looking for some peace because there's a nation rising up, a nation called Assyria, and it looks like they are large and in charge, and they are going to take over everyone in their path. And God says to Ahaz, hey, look, I know Assyria looms large, and I know you want peace, but don't make peace with them. Make peace with me because I will protect you and I will keep you from that power, Assyria. Ahaz does not listen. He does not trust God. And when he doesn't trust God, he puts God's purposes in his country at risk. You see, God had told the kingdom of Israel that their throne was a special throne that their throne had promises that he had not given to any other nation, that God had aligned his throne with the throne of their country. And so that as God ruled, he was also ruling through their king. God was making his kingship known through the king of Israel. And so to put themselves in submission to Assyria would be to put God's throne in submission to a foreign power. And God does not take any of that. And so he says, listen, I am still on the throne. Do not submit and make an alliance with Assyria. The king of Israel is my anointed one, and I will protect that throne because I show my purposes to the world through that throne. Ahaz does not listen. And seeking out a moment of peace, he makes an alliance with Assyria. And the one he makes an alliance with eventually turns against him and oppresses the throne and oppresses the people that he was trying to protect and eventually takes them and brings them into exile so they're not even in their land anymore, but they're prisoners in another land. And the throne, the thing that, I, that Ahaz was supposed to protect becomes impotent. It's just a puppet king under the oppression of Assyria. You see, when Ahaz said no to God, he actually said no to peace. Even though he was seeking peace, he didn't look for it through God. And when he said no to God, he said no to peace. The thing is, is you and I look around this world and because we don't see peace, we assume that there's no God. How many people have you talked to and they've said, listen, I just can't believe that God exists because things are so chaotic. But the reality is the chaos is here, not because of God, but because of what we have chosen in saying no to God. When we broke peace with God, peace got broke in the world. 
No peace does not mean that there's no God. God is not absent or uncommitted or non-existent just because we don't find peace in the world. Really, the absence of peace in this world comes because we broke peace. We tend to, to blame the lack of peace on God. If your life's going crazy right now, or if you see wars and nations at war, or if you see injustice, we say, well, it's, it's God's fault. Or you say, God must not exist because there is no peace. But the reality is we're the ones who have caused that chaos when we broke peace with God. But the amazing thing about God is the chaos we create in breaking peace, that chaos doesn't stop God. The chaos we create doesn't hinder God. Now Ahaz had lost his sovereignty in putting himself in submission to Assyria. This is a tragic event. It's breaking faith with God. It's not trusting him, but it doesn't stop God. The amazing thing about God is that you and I fail daily to follow him. We break peace all the time with each other and with him, but that doesn't stop him. God is committed to being God. The lack of trust that we have in God never hinders God's faithfulness. He is 110% faithful 120% of the time. And our disobedience never shuts off God's purposes. When we broke peace with God, peace got broken the world, but a broken world did not break God. You see, when you and I are fools, God does not stop being God. And that should be an encouragement to this morning to us because that gives us an honesty. It gives us a freedom to be honest about who we really are. And in that brokenness, look to God. God tells Ahaz, you have been foolish and there will be consequences. And there were consequences. At this moment, the history of Israel shifts and the kings after this were puppet kings. And the people that lived after this were under oppression and they were taken into exile. There were real consequences for Ahaz's lack of faith. The enemy he made peace with brought war to their doorstep. They were conquered and taken as prisoners. He didn't have any peace, but God says, yet I'm still here. I'm a God who doesn't quit. I'm a God who brings restoration. I'm a God who is a God of peace. Even though you haven't even been defeated yet, I'm already thinking of the victory speech against your enemies. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. Even though the bad stuff hasn't yet happened to Ahaz and his people, God is already talking about when he's going to bring peace and set things right in the past tense, as if he's already done it, because he is so committed to shalom and to peace. It says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They haven't even seen the darkness yet, and God is already talking about how he is going to bring light. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. The nation hasn't even been split yet, and God is already talking about how he is going to grow the family. Verse 3 says, you have increased its joy. They haven't even experienced the sadness yet, and God is talking about his restorative joy brought to his people. In verse 4, he says, the burden, the rod of the oppressor, which hasn't even come yet. God says, I have broken. The soldiers that haven't yet come to the city of Jerusalem, 
they're defeated. And he ends by saying, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, it's really important that you and I trust and obey and keep faith with God, but the reality is we don't. And there are real consequences to our disobedience against God, but our disobedience does not stop God from being God. You can say amen. 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 The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, when we broke peace with God, peace got broke in the world, but a broken world did not break God. God is still God, and he is committed to restoring shalom. God is committed to restoring shalom. Well, how did he do it? Verse 6 tells us the famous passage we read every Christmas. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. But this is no ordinary child. This is the child that we learn about in in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah is teaching us more about this child as, as we go along. And the whole passage is covered in kingly language. In other words, Ahaz failed as a king, but this child is not going to fail as a king. This child is a true king. Ahaz decreased his sovereignty. This child will increase his sovereignty. He will establish it and uphold it. And there's no end in sight for the growth of his kingdom. He's a wonderful counselor. And that means that he makes pretty good strategies and pretty good plans, which if you're a king, you have to. But he's not just any type of counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. And we could do a whole sermon on that word, wonderful. But not only is he a wonderful counselor, he is mighty God. God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. But he's also everlasting father. Now, when Isaiah writes everlasting father, he doesn't want us to think that this is the father and is in the first person of the Trinity. Father is a term for king, okay? So he wants us to get a picture that this king is like a fatherly king, but he's an everlasting fatherly king. In other words, you can't knock him off the throne. He's there to stay. And he's also the prince of peace. The prince of peace. You and I on this side of the New Testament, we know that all this is fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the prince of peace. You see, no God, no peace. But if you know Jesus, you know peace. When Jesus comes on the scene in Luke 2, the heavens open up and the angels descend onto these shepherds and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And if you know yourself to be a sinner, this should be good news. Your heart should skip a beat because God is a righteous judge. Judge, And because we've broken peace with him, he has the right to judge us. That's why we find ourselves in separation. When we broke peace with God, we broke peace in the world, we broke our relationship with him. Everything's broken and we're no longer naturally in relationship with him. 
Some would say our spiritual umbilical cord was cut and severed, so we're no longer in a relationship with him of peace, but one of enmity. Well, if we're honest in our hearts, we really want to be on God's throne. We want his spot. And so when Jesus comes, he could come to bring wrath and punishment and judgment, but when he comes, he brings peace. 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 Jesus comes to make peace by going to the cross on your behalf. He is your substitute. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, perfectly God, perfectly man, went to the cross for you so that peace could be made between you and God by his death for you. He was put on the cross, punished in your place, buried in the tomb, and on the third day, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And now Jesus is at the right hand of God. Your peace is up there, so you can't mess it up. He's up in the throne room of God, making peace between you and God. And God doesn't say, I see that person, and they're a sinner, so I'm not going to answer their prayers. I'm waiting for judgment. No, God looks at Jesus and sees the peace that he has, been, that he has made, and welcomes your prayers. So you're no longer in enmity with God. You're no longer enemies with him. You're in a relationship of peace. Romans 5.1 tells us that when we place our faith in Jesus, that makes us right with God. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might know yourself and you say, I, I, well, I don't deserve peace. I know myself, I'm broken, I'm sinful. Sometimes if I'm honest, I don't listen to what God says. You're right, you don't deserve peace. But that's what makes the gospel even more compelling and exciting. You don't deserve Jesus, but Jesus gave himself to you so that you could have peace with God. You know, if you read through the New Testament and you read about all the different churches in the New Testament, man, there's some churches that are really messed up. They got messed up people and they're not really representing Jesus that well. But do you know how every New Testament letter to the churches starts off? Grace and peace from God the Father. Because Jesus has died for you, you are in a relationship of peace with God. And that actually helps you have personal peace. Because as you look at your past and as you see the hurt that has been done to you, you begin to think in terms of the gospel of peace. And as hurt has been done to you, you are reminded that I have hurt God by my sin. And yet God has forgiven me. And so I have a new power to forgive those who hurt me. And as you do that, you actually walk in more peace. But not only that, you're empowered to admit who you really are and seek to make peace where you've brought chaos. Some of you haven't, have been hurt, but you've also hurt others. And as you see Jesus on the throne and you see the gospel of peace, you're reminded, I am a sinner. But because God has forgiven me, I can go with boldness and confidence to the people I have hurt and ask for their forgiveness. And as you forgive and are forgiven and ask for forgiveness, you find that you actually come to peace with your past. You aren't defined by the shame of what you did or didn't do or what was done or not done to you, but by Jesus. 
and the gospel of peace. And as you grow as a Christian, you experience progressive peace. You learn to trust the one who died for you. See, some of us, if we're honest, we we know all that, but we're not living in peace. Our lives feel very chaotic. And let let me take a guess here. If you're like me, you walk around thinking that the government is on your shoulders. But in Isaiah 9, it says that the government is on the shoulders of the Prince of Peace. And some of you just need to let it go and trust him that he's leading you in your life, even if it feels chaotic. Have you ever met someone who walks in peace even though their life is chaotic? That's actually possible for the Christian because of what Jesus has done. It's like a gift card. I know that some of you all get gift cards for Christmas and you never cash them in and they're just sitting around. You got a drawer for them somewhere. The gospel of peace is like that. You have to cash it in. You have to use it. You have to apply it by faith. And as you do that and as you walk with God in peace, you will grow in peace. And by the way, if you're not using your gift cards, I'll take them. <laughs> See, look, God wants you to walk at peace, in peace with him because he has numbered the hairs on your head. He's numbered the hairs on your head. If I asked him right now and he was here, he'd be able to spout out how many hairs were on each of your head. And that gives you a sense of peace that there is someone who is watching out for you and understands your situation and knows more about you than you know about yourself. To know Jesus means to know peace, and that is a personal peace that we get with God and a progressive peace that we build in our lives by walking with God. But when Jesus restores peace with God, peace gets unleashed in the world. Peace gets unleashed in the world. Isaiah writes that of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah also puts it this way in verse, in chapter two, he says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When Jesus returns, he will finalize peace on earth. I forgot to bring it this morning, but I have a, a, a little um, a used bullet from Liberia. And Liberia was a country in West Africa that was torn apart by war. And I got to visit there um, in 2009. And this, this empty bullet has now been reshaped into a paperweight. And it's torn apart so that it looks like the country of Liberia. And whenever I look at that, I remember that instruments of war will be used for something positive. This passage talks about instruments of war being made into things that bring about farming and and progress and shalom. And shalom. Jesus restores peace with God, but he also brings peace into the world through us, through you and I walking in the peace of God. Isaiah gives us another picture of what this will look like in in the final day when Jesus returns. And and it's such figurative language, people not really sure what it means. 
Is this about animals loving on each other? Is this about nations? Are these symbolic about nations who will no longer war? Well, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure. I, I've been studying this passage for years and I can't really come to a conclusion, but I'll go, I'll take either one. I'll take either one because it's a picture of shalom, of the peace of Jesus. It says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One day, shalom will be everywhere. One day, Jesus will return and restore peace. And you and I can only begin to imagine what that will be like. It will be so full in the earth that it'll be as the waters cover the sea. How wet is the ocean? 100% wet. How much does the waters cover the sea? Fully. When Jesus returns, shalom will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so that longing that you have in your heart for peace and shalom, don't let that go. That's coming when Jesus returns. But today, right here and right now in our city, God shows his peace through you, through us together at New City Fellowship. God shows the world what peace looks like. See, as you are made by peace, as you are made by the peace of Christ, you become a peacemaker. You become an instrument of God in this broken world. When you know Jesus, you know peace. And as you know peace, you are known for peace. As you speak about Jesus and the gospel of peace, the gospel of reconciliation between God and man, you become a peacemaker. As you walk with the Prince of Peace and as you step into broken situations in our city that don't change overnight, but with the peace of Christ in your heart, you bring the peace of God with you. I'll leave you with this story. I heard about a man uh, in Liberia. I mentioned Liberia earlier. Liberia was torn apart by civil war and refugees had fled there and I got to be friends with many of them when we lived in St. Louis. And one of my dear friends told me about a man who was called the most evil man in the world. His name was Joshua Milton Blyi. He was a Liberian warlord. Uh, he was terrifying. He and his brigade were responsible for thousands and thousands of deaths during the Liberian Civil War. Many of his, the people in his brigade were child soldiers. And he would keep them coming and fighting for them by giving them cocaine and other drugs. He was responsible for being involved in the blood drying trade to get the drugs to keep the kids addicted and keep him fighting, keep them fighting for him. And he was known for literally sacrificing children. 
This was an evil, evil man, responsible for thousands of deaths during the Liberian Civil War, responsible for corrupting child soldiers in Liberia. And while I was in Liberia, I came into contact with some adolescent boys who had been child soldiers. And I'll tell you, I saw the chaos in their eyes. This was an evil man, Joshua Milton Blahi. An evil man with no hope, not responsible for any peace, but responsible for chaos, destruction, war. Until he met the Prince of Peace. Joshua Blahi had a radical conversion experience where he saw himself for who he really was and he realized that there was no hope for him unless the Prince of Peace offered him forgiveness. And towards the end of the war, Blahi says that he had a conversion experience where Jesus came to him and said, repent or perish. And in that moment, he realized that he must change everything. After all the destruction he had caused, he looked at the Prince of Peace and said, that is my only hope. He was baptized just a few months later. You wouldn't believe it now if I told you, but Blahi preaches the gospel. He's become a pastor and he travels around preaching the gospel. Not only that, but he is going back to the very child soldiers that he destroyed trying to save them and bring shalom into their lives. Now, I'll tell you, it's not easy because there are a lot of people that want him dead, understandably so, and he knows that. He knows that at one point he might be killed by someone's family that he hurt in the past. And yet the Prince of Peace compels him to keep preaching peace and keep making peace even to the point where he has said, I am a war criminal. And if peace must be made by me going to The Hague and confessing my war crimes, I will go. The radical freedom of knowing the Prince of Peace allows you to be honest about who you are, see yourself reconciled to God through what Jesus has done on the cross, but then become a peacemaker in this world. No God, no peace. But when you know Jesus, you can know peace and be known for peace. God is bringing peace on this earth, first through Jesus and then through you and me as Jesus lives in us and we become peacemakers in this earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that, uh, Father, if we got honest, all of us have things in our past all of us have ways that we have destroyed peace, both with you and with each other. Father, help us now to grab onto the gospel of peace, to be made by peace so that we could make peace in this world. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are on the throne. We pray, I pray for this brother that I even ended the sermon on. Uh, I pray that he would see progressive repentance and restoration and peace in his own life and, and around him. And I pray that you would embolden him to preach the gospel and continue to make peace with his past and peace with those that he's destroyed. In Jesus' name.